Good morning, everyone. Let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Mark again, chapter 1. And we'll pick up there. And where we left off. And so I'll read again to us uh, verses 35 to 39, Mark chapter 1. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Uh, in my message yesterday, uh, my focus was on the prayer life uh, of the Lord Jesus. And today I, I want to focus on the example of Jesus as a preacher. Uh, I remind us again of those two great priorities of the Christian ministry as we see them set forth in Acts chapter 6, when the first deacons were appointed to administer the benevolence and physical needs of the church. But, said the apostles, who were also functioning at that time as the elders, there was the universal church and the local church were one and the same. And that, uh, in the very beginning of the history of the church, the church in Jerusalem, and they, they said, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Prayer and the ministry of the word, prayer and preaching are to be primary, to be first place, to have priority in the life of the minister of the gospel. And this is what we see in the Lord Jesus. As many of you know, uh, we're living in a day when preaching has fallen on hard times. It's become increasingly marginalized. It's being replaced by concerts, PowerPoints, slideshows, dramatic productions, skits, movie clips, and things such as this, or it's being pushed into a corner. Uh, with sermons, if tolerated at all, expected to be shorter and shorter, while all these other things become longer and longer. And even when there is a segment of time for a man to stand up and speak in many churches, it requires, I think, a great stretch of the imagination uh, to call the performance preaching at all in the biblical sense of what that means. In fact, I, you know, I have to say that I, that I do sympathize a little bit with people in their impatience and their dislike of preaching uh, today. When we go on vacation, uh, often have opportunities to attend various churches. And I guess I should, but I don't always look for a Reformed Baptist church to attend. Sometimes I like to attend other churches just to see what they're like, see what's happening. And, and I, when I've had occasion to do it so many times, I have to say that I understand how people feel. It doesn't surprise me that people are tired of preaching. I'm not saying it's right. But I can understand why many churches are giving more and more emphasis to entertainment and gimmicks in an effort to keep up interest because so much of the preaching today is so boring or bad and sometimes it's even silly. But the remedy uh, for bad preaching is not no preaching or less preaching. The remedy is good preaching. 
preaching that is scripturally grounded, uh, doctrinally sound, spirit-empowered, heart-penetrating, conscience-convicting, and Christ-exalting. Preaching by God-called men who are full of the Spirit, burning with zeal for Christ, a burden for sinners, and with love for God's people. That's true preaching, and that's really the crying need of our day. Now, the Bible gives us many good examples of good preaching. Uh, there are many good examples in church history. But, of course, the greatest preacher by far, the greatest preacher ever in the history of the world was the Lord Jesus. Yes, Spurgeon was a great preacher, but the real prince of preachers was Jesus Christ himself. So I want us to consider in the next two messages the preaching of Jesus as an example for the gospel minister. And I've had us turn back again to Mark 1, 35 to 39 as the jumping off point for what I want to say this morning. And here we see not only the important place of prayer in the life of Jesus, which we looked at yesterday, but we also see the importance that he gave to preaching. And I remind you of the context. The previous day in the life of Jesus began in verse 21, and it was a very busy day. It began with him teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, casting out a demon out of a man who cried out during the service. After the service, he goes to Simon Peter's house, and there he heals Peter's mother-in-law who had a fever. But the news of what happened earlier that day has spread like wildfire all over throughout Galilee, and by evening... Crowds are gathering at the door, bringing sick people and those who were demon-possessed. And it was amazing. The whole city was gathered together, and Jesus healed many and cast out demons for who knows how long into the evening. But then after this busy day, as we saw yesterday, verse 35, in the morning, having, ri having risen a long while before daylight, he went into a solitary place to pray. So Jesus snuck out of the house. Uh, while everyone was sleeping and he's out in some secluded place crying to God in prayer. Well, the scene now shifts to Simon, to Simon Peter. Now, can you imagine the shock when Peter wakes up and the crowds are back and they're all there waiting outside his door, but there's no Jesus. He scurries around. Where's Jesus? What happened to Jesus? And so... All these people are there. They're waiting to be helped, to be healed, looking for some more miracles. What are we going to do? So Peter and some of the others go out looking for him. I say others because verse 37 says, when they found him. And indeed, in, in the uh, parallel account in Luke, which we'll look at in a moment, we find that some of those who were among the crowd were among those who were looking for him. So they're all looking for him. Verse 37, and when they found him... They said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, there's a note of exasperation, I think, in these words. Come on, Jesus. What are you doing? There are people here. They have serious needs, sick people, and they're all expecting you to help them. But what does Jesus say? <clears throat> what does he say? It's very revealing, I think, what he says. Verse 38. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose, I have come forth. For this purpose, I have come forth. For Jesus, preaching the gospel takes priority over healing the sick. It comes first. This is the purpose for which I came. 
Dick Lucas, uh, commenting on this part of Mark's gospel, uh, Mark's account said this in answer to the question, how to ruin your ministry? It would take three easy steps. One, get the power to heal all sickness. Two, get a large crowd of sick people. Three, turn them away and tell them that you're going on a preaching tour. <clears throat> but that's essentially what Jesus did. And this underscores, I think, in a very striking way, the prominence of preaching in the mind and the ministry of the Lord Jesus. So this is the first point I want us to see as we consider uh, the preaching of the Lord Jesus. And it's simply this, that preaching was a primary task to which Jesus gave himself during his earthly ministry. And I think we could say the primary task. I said a primary task because as I was preparing this, I actually was thinking about doing a sermon on Jesus as a mentor. And it struck me how that perhaps we could say there were two primary tasks Jesus gave himself to, preaching and then also interacting privately and mentoring those 12 men that were given to him to prepare them for the work that was to lie ahead of them. And I think both of those were, in a sense, a priority, the major priority in the life of our Lord Jesus. But as I started preparing and I got into this stuff about preaching and it got longer and, and I ran out of time. And so we're going to stick with Jesus preaching today and maybe some other time we can look at that. Jesus as a mentor. But anyway, preaching definitely was a primary task, perhaps the primary task to which Jesus gave himself during his earthly ministry, preaching and teaching the word of God and the truth of God. And I, uh, that was central to his whole ministry. Now, of course, the ultimate purpose for which he came was to die on the cross for our sins. But his immediate purpose, his primary task, his primary focus leading up to that was preaching and teaching. And I grouped them both together uh, as, uh, under the heading of the ministry of the word. In fact, do you know what the title is, that Je by what title Jesus is addressed more than any other title in the gospel records. I heard someone um, mention this and bring this out. I had never thought about it before, and I looked it up. You look it up in the concordance. It was not healer, obviously. It was not exorcist. It was not even son of man or son of God. It was teacher. In fact, in Luke's gospel alone, he's addressed as teacher at least 12 times. This is how people thought of him, because this is what he was always doing, preaching and teaching the word of God. Let's turn over now to the parallel account in Luke chapter four. I want to turn here because Luke has a lot more to tell us about our Lord's preaching. And actually, let's begin uh, by looking at uh, verses 14 to 15 of Luke chapter four. We have the baptism of the Lord Jesus. We read. No, I'm, I'm sorry, that's later. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. I mean by that, we'll look at that later. It's not later in the scripture, but verse 14 and 15. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went throughout all the surrounding region, region and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. We may not think about that as often as we did, but Jesus did a lot of teaching and preaching in the synagogues throughout Galilee. And it says here, here he was glorified by all. He was praised by all. <clears throat> and what were they glorifying for? His teaching in the synagogues. 
Notice in his sermon on down here in, the, in this chapter in the synagogue in Nazareth, how Jesus himself describes the focus of his ministry. He takes there as his text a portion from the prophet Isaiah, a prophecy about the Messiah, which he then applies to himself. And look at verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to do what? To preach the gospel to the poor, and so on. Evangelizo, to preach good news. Then he refers twice more to preaching, using the word translated here, to proclaim. To proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And actually this translates the more formal word for preaching, keruso, to herald. To proclaim as a herald, not to share, not to give a talk, not to lead discussion groups, but to authoritatively proclaim as a herald does. And here Jesus describes his ministry as primarily a ministry of preaching. Look at verses 31 to 32. Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. And this brings us now to the parallel passage to our opening text, picking up at verse 42. Now, when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place, and and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. We get a little more information here. They tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Notice again, Jesus said, for this purpose, I have been sent. For what purpose was he sent? To preach the kingdom of God. And this is what he was doing, preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Now, my dear brothers, you've heard this before, I know, but only God has only one only begotten son, and he was a preacher. <clears throat> now, think about that. Think about what tremendous value and importance this places upon the ministry of preaching. Preaching was the primary task to which Jesus gave himself during his earthly ministry. And Luke draws attention to this over and over in his gospel, and so do the other gospel writers. For example, Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1, 39. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee. Mark 2, 1 and 2, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered, so there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Matthew 11, 1. Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Our Lord Jesus, our dear Savior, was first and foremost a preacher. Preacher. Preaching was central to his ministry. And this doesn't stop with Jesus in the Great Commission that he gave to his apostles, to the church. As recorded by Luke, what did he tell them and us to do? Luke 24, 46 and following. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. And when we turn to the book of Acts, what was the primary method 
of the church in spreading the gospel and edifying the saints. It wasn't the only method, but the primary method. It was preaching. We have the great sermons that are recorded for us in Acts. We have those words of Acts 6. But we, but we, like our Savior, following His example, we will do what He did. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And that's what they did. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.21, For it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And of course you may point out that actually the Greek text says the foolishness of the thing preached, or as the New King James has it, the foolishness of the message preached. And that's true, but it's the message preached. Paul says in verse 23 of that chapter, But we preach Christ crucified. Paul, writing in his epistles, pleads with the people of God to pray for him, that he might be enabled to preach, to, to speak as he ought to speak, as he ought to preach. And he solemnly charges Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2 to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And we could go on with examples. We could also look at the history of the church. And when we do, we find that the church is always at its strongest, always at its best, when she's marked by faithful and powerful preaching. <clears throat> well, my dear brothers, the application of this to ourselves, I think, is obvious. If I am a man, if I'm a man who's been called and set apart by the church as an elder, who labors in word and doctrine, a preaching elder, if I might put it that, that way, you know what I mean by that. If I'm a gospel minister of Jesus Christ, and if Jesus is indeed our great example and model for Christian ministry, then I, like Jesus, must keep preaching as my primary concern and focus of my ministry. Together with prayer, the ministry of the word must come first. And that also means that I must be careful to guard the primacy of preaching in my ministry. And I must make it the primary goal in my ministry to be a good preacher. To be always improving and growing in my preaching. To try to get better and better at what I'm actually called to do. You know, one of the most liberating things is to know what you're supposed to be doing. To know your purpose, like Jesus did. He said, I must preach the kingdom of God, because for this purpose I have been sent. As it was with Jesus, there are always so many other things, so many good things that we could be doing. So many things out there in the world, in society, that need to be done and need someone to do them. In the realm of politics, in the realm of education, health care, nursing care, fighting abortion, fighting poverty, serving on the city council, on the volunteer fire department. Good things that need to be done. Also in the church, there are so many needs, so many things that could be done and that I could be doing. It's easy to dissipate our energies like a bird flitting from one branch to another, but I'm not able to do everything. I'm not called to do everything. Quoting from Alistair Begg, he says, You want to be remembered for something amongst your people. Be remembered for talking to them about the Bible and about Jesus. 
You can't do all the other things they may want you to do. You can't go over to all their homes and have dinner with them. Now, he's he's speaking in, you know, extremes. Obviously, we can and we should seek to do those things. But you can't you can't just constantly be doing that all the time. You can't go over to all their homes and have dinner with them. You can't answer all their questions. You can't sit around with them for the rest of their lives. You can't hold all their hands. But you can tell them, I will express my love for you by doing what I have been uniquely given to do. Namely, to be a preacher and teacher of the Bible. And at the end of the day, I want you to know that I gave myself unstintingly to the task. And you knew that you would never come here with a friend or a neighbor with an interested bystander and be left high and dry because I did not teach you. I did not preach to you the word of God. And so often, brothers, we can be like the water hose uh, nozzle when it's on wide setting. You're trying to clean off the driveway and rinse the driveway, perhaps, but you're getting nowhere because the water stream has no force. It's, it's spread out too much. It's spread too thin. But when you tighten the nozzle, well, then you can get something done. So it can be with us. We can be spread so thin, doing so many things that we do none of them really well. And we end up being weak in the very area which is to be our primary focus, not to mention neglecting prayer. We do not devote ourselves with the diligence that we should to the ministry of the word. This is one of the common temptations that we pastors face. Quoting R.B. Kuyper, commenting on this, Because his duties are manifold, there is a great danger that the minister will fail to put first things first, that he will spread himself thin, that he will attempt to do so many things that he does nothing well. Perhaps he will be an administrator rather than a teacher. He may even turn into the proverbial jack-of-all-trades, comprising chauffeur, messenger boy, and assistant housekeeper. Because he tries to do too much, he may accomplish next to nothing. Quoting from David Abendroth in his little book, uh, Jesus, the Prince of Preachers, he writes, Even though administration, counseling, and a hundred other Profitable ministries demand attention from the pastor. The preacher, with flint-like determination, must follow the master's mandate and keep preaching central. Think, for example, about a heart surgeon. There are many things that a heart surgeon needs to know and has to do as part of his work. He needs to have an overall knowledge of medical science and in general human anatomy, how the various organs of the body work and how they influence one another, and of all the possible ailments that the human body might be subject to. He needs to prescribe medications. He needs to know something about the various medications, what medications are best for this or what are best for this. He needs to know how to use a stethoscope. He sometimes has to take people's blood pressure. He has to read heart monitors and give stress tests and do EKGs and coronary angiograms, and he has to interpret them. He has to communicate with his patients, and he needs to practice good bedside manner. Uh, there are many things like this that go along with being a heart surgeon, but there's one area that's his specialty. There's one thing he better be locked in on, and he better be good at. He better be good at performing heart surgeries. Why? Because above everything else, that's what he is. He's a heart surgeon. If he's good at all the other stuff that doctors do, 
but he's sloppy and careless when it comes to performing actual heart surgeries. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to entrust uh, my heart into that guy's hands. Well, you see, my dear brothers, with all the various responsibilities and activities that come with the Christian ministry, and many of them are, are important, very important, let us never forget that above all else, we are preachers. And therefore, we must be committed to preaching, which also means we must be committed to striving by God's grace to be good and effective preachers, always seeking to improve and to get better at it. Well, this is where I think the example of Jesus can help us. I think there are things we can learn, certainly from the preaching of Jesus, that can help us to be better preachers. We should always be trying to improve as preachers. You know, it should be your regular practice, even when you're older like me, or you're in the latter, some of you that are in the latter days, to still read books about preaching. To still be working on it. To be thinking through where areas I can improve in my preaching. And to deliberately go to work at seeking to improve. Uh, we should all throughout our lifetime be improving as better communicators, better preachers of God's word. And what greater example could we have than the example of the Lord Jesus himself? And so we're going to look at some things, some of the characteristics. And this is our point to the characteristics of Jesus preaching. Now, we don't know what he sounded like. The variety of tone and pitch and volume, the quality of his voice. Nothing's ever said about any of those things in Scripture. Uh, it's interesting, I think, that nothing's ever said about those things, but it's not. Uh, there's but there's still, even so, there's much we can learn about preaching from what we are given. And the characteristic that I want to, the first characteristic I want to draw attention to, and this is really the only one I'll have time to address in this session, and the rest will have to wait until next, the next session. But the first characteristic is really foundational, I think, and, and important. Really the first two are, I would put, as equally foundational. But here's the first one. That the preaching of the Lord Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. It was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look over at Luke chapter 3, picking up at verse 21. And now we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus. I got ahead of myself a while ago. Uh, chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heavens, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son. In you, I am well pleased. And here Luke gives us a, an interesting detail that's not given in the other gospel records. And this harks back to the subject of my last message, namely that Jesus was praying at his baptism. And what do you think he was praying about? Well, the text doesn't say, but based on what happened, uh, I, I think it's safe to assume that he was praying, among other things, that God would fill him full of the Holy Spirit to equip him for his work. And perhaps he was also praying that the Father would confirm to him and assure him of his smile as he began his public ministry. The text doesn't tell us what he prayed for, but I think these are safe assumptions because it does tell us what happened. As he was praying, first the text says, the heaven was open. 
Secondly, the second thing that happened, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And then thirdly, a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. But what I want to draw attention to is this matter of the Holy Spirit descending upon him. What's the significance of this? Well, I remind you of something that I mentioned in the last message. Jesus Christ, in his state of humiliation, when he took to himself a human body and soul and entered into this world to save us, placed himself wholly under submission to the Father. Again, as we read in Philippians 2, 6 and following, though he was equal with the Father and fully God, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He became obedient to whom? To the Father. And it was an obedience carried out as a true man, carried out in his true humanity, by means of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. He lived as a real man in total dependence upon the Holy Spirit, just as you and I are called to do. But now Jesus, when we think about that, he was always indwelled and filled by the Holy Spirit from the womb. He was always perfectly sinless and holy. But here he received something different, a distinct anointing of the Spirit. The Spirit falls upon him in this special and unusual way at the beginning of his public ministry. His human nature was anointed and empowered by the Spirit for the fulfillment of his work. That's what was happening here while Jesus is praying at his baptism. And we don't find anywhere in the Gospels that Jesus ever preached or taught publicly until after this event. Until after his human nature was anointed for that work by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And then Luke continues to pick up with this now. After he then give, pauses, he gives a gene, genealogy, our Lord's genealogy at the end of the chapter. How does chapter 4 now begin? The next major event in our Lord's life after this experience at his baptism. Chapter 4, verse 1. We read, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Devil. It's then Luke tells us, picking up at verse 14, that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and He began teaching in the synagogues. And then we have the record of His first sermon in the synagogue of Nazareth, and His text begins with these words. Verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. This is one of the things that distinguished our Lord's teaching and preaching from the scribes and the Pharisees. There was this divine unction, this authority that rested upon Jesus as he spoke. He preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what is important for us to see. There, there is a distinction in the New Testament between the, the habitual ongoing indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit with reference to sanctification and holiness of life. That was true of Jesus the entire 30 years before this. But there's a difference between that and the anointing and empowering of the Spirit for preaching. It's an important distinction. And it's, an, it's a distinction not only true for Jesus, but for all of His servants. 
Now, in the case of Jesus, there was a special empowering of the Spirit that occurred at a specific place and time as a marked event in his life. It was at his baptism. And it would be wrong to conclude from that that all gospel preachers must have an equally uh, dramatic experience at a specific place and time. That's saying more than, uh, than Scripture allows. But think about it. If it was necessary for the preaching of Jesus to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. How much more is that the case with ordinary preachers like you and me? We see the same thing with the apostles later in the book of Acts. This is what Jesus promised to his disciples when he gave the Great Commission. In Luke 24, 45 and following, he said, Thus it is written, Thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Then he said, Behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. We read in Acts 1.8 that he said to them, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power for what? And you shall be witnesses to me. Now again, with the apostles, there was a marked event at a specific time and place when they received this special empowering of the Spirit for the first time. And granted, there's an element of uniqueness to their experience. It was tied to that peculiar uh, the peculiar significance of that one-time event of the initial coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church at Pentecost. However, there is still this underlying principle of the necessity of the power of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of preaching. And even after Pentecost, we see throughout the book of Acts that the apostles continually needed and they received Fresh infillings and empowerings of the Spirit in their preaching. It's not a once and for all thing. We read of Peter in Acts 4, 7, standing up to speak. And at that moment, he was filled with this Holy Spirit. At that moment, for that occasion. Later in Acts 4, this is well after Pentecost. You remember, uh, there's a prayer meeting and we're told that in answer to their prayers, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak the word of God with boldness. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 2, 3 to 4 says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Writing to the church in Thessalonica, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5, knowing Beloved brethren, your election of God for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. The power of the Holy Spirit, absolutely essential to true preaching. His power upon the preacher and upon the preaching. Now, some of you young men who are here, who are preparing for the ministry and are in the early stages of Christian ministry. It really applies to all of us, but, I, but I, want to, I want to say a few things to you directly. I want to tell you something, something that you need to know, uh, and it's this. That there's nothing in the world harder, nothing more difficult than to preach in such a manner that sinners are converted under your ministry. 
and God's people are sanctified and built up in the faith. There's nothing harder, nothing more difficult than that. Now, I might, I might be reluctant to say that in front of my congregation because some of the men in my church have very difficult jobs. You know, sometimes we as pastors, you know, we, we can get together and commiserate with one another about the miseries and difficulties of the Christian ministry. But sometimes sit down with some of your men, find out what they're dealing with. The schedules that they're having to live with, the, the things they're having to do, the kind of work they're having to go to every single day of the year. And so, you know, I would maybe be a little reluctant to say this in front of them. If I said that to them, they might think, come on, pastor, you got it easy. You get to study the Bible for hours and hours and to give your life to serving the church and ministering to people and serving God's people. What could be more wonderful than that? Well, I have to agree with them to a certain extent. And maybe some of you young men, as you look ahead and you think about the ministry, that's what you think about. And you think, well, this is what, how wonderful could that well, That would be just wonderful. And, that, and you look forward to that. And that's true. But think soberly. At the same time, I can say with the utmost certainty that there is nothing harder and more difficult than to preach in such a manner that sinners are converted under your ministry and God's people are caused to grow in grace. And the reason I say that is because preaching with that kind of effect is in fact utterly and completely and absolutely impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible to do it with any real and lasting fruit from your ministry apart from, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's not impossible to be a good public speaker. It's not impossible to know Greek and Hebrew. Now, you may be thinking it's impossible right now. <laughs> I know some of you guys are taking Hebrew right now, but you can do it. You work hard at it, you'll get it. It's not impossible to know Greek and Hebrew and to understand theology and to be a Calvinist and to hold to the confession of faith. It's not impossible to give well-prepared sermons with a good outline and good illustrations and good applications. And with some of you, it's not impossible to impress people and to amaze them with your gifts. But it is impossible. To preach in such a manner that sinners are converted to Christ under your ministry and God's people are caused to grow in grace and in love for Christ and love for one another is impossible apart from the powerful influences of the Holy Spirit upon the preacher and upon the preaching. John Piper put it this way, all genuine preaching is rooted in a feeling of desperation. Desperation. Oh, God, who is sufficient for these things? My dear friend, you are attempting the impossible. If you think you can do this in your own strength, you're doomed to failure. Only the Holy Spirit can awaken and convince sinners of their lost condition. Only the Holy Spirit can regenerate sinners and give them the gift of faith and repentance. Only the Holy Spirit can make the Word of God effectual 
to comfort and to build up and to sanctify the people of God. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. He does it through the Word. He doesn't do it apart from the Word. It's not the Spirit without the Word. But the Word alone can do nothing apart from the power of the Spirit, penetrating into the hearts of men, giving life and light and heat and the certainty of faith. Only the Holy Spirit can illuminate the mind of the preacher himself, enabling him to draw fresh insights from the Scriptures as he prepares his sermons and giving to him the certainty of faith and the truth that he preaches. So that we not only preach as advocates of the truth that we're preaching, but we preach as witnesses to the truth that we're preaching because we experience it and we know it in our own hearts and even as we're preaching it. And there's a difference between those two things. Lloyd-Jones tells an illustration, in fact, of uh, a man. He's talking about preaching in the power of the Spirit. He went to hear two preachers and one of them got up and preached. And then another guy preached later and his friend questioned him about the two men. And he said, well, you know, the first preacher, I thought he was really good. He, his points were clear. He, he accurately expounded the text. He said, but the second guy, there was something different. And he said, the first guy... He struck me as a man who, who, is, who is speaking as an advocate for the truth that he's proclaiming. The other guy spoke as a witness. In other words, he, he spoke as a man who, who, ex, was, who experienced the truth he was speaking about. And who spoke from a heart that was moved, that, that knew the reality and the power of those truths at work in his own heart. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can give fresh insights and timely words, unprepared sometimes, that hit the mark, even as the sermon is being preached. And work in the heart of the preacher, an unfeigned sense of urgency in his soul and a genuine love for the people that he is speaking to and preaching to in the act of preaching. Without the power of the Holy Spirit upon a man's preaching, it will accomplish absolutely nothing of any lasting value. Now, having said all of that, it's important for us to understand that there are measures and degrees of this that a man may know and experience. And we may know more of the Spirit's power upon our preaching uh, at one time than another. As in all of the works of God's Spirit also... There is the ordinary, which we are not to despise, and there are those special times, the extraordinary, which are in the sovereign hand of God. But for our, but for our preaching to be lastingly effective to any degree, at any time, it must, in some measure, be accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones, perhaps the most powerful preacher of the 20th century, he described in a letter to a friend an extraordinary experience he had of the Spirit's power in preaching. He's and it's interesting, in the context, he's confessing to his friend his sense of unworthiness, feeling that he had never preached well in his whole life. Isn't that, you know, you think, well, if he's never preached well in his whole life. <laughs> he says, and I quote, that I am finding myself in many ways unworthy of my calling. Indeed, at times, finding nothing whatsoever to recommend myself 
as a preacher of the gospel. But later in the letter, he describes an experience that he had at a place called Bridge End. And I don't know where that is. I guess it's probably a, a town in Wales somewhere. And he says, Never do I think have I been so conscious of the power of the word and the gale of the spirit. It is exceedingly difficult to go on living after such an experience. Especially difficult to go on preaching. And Kent Hughes in his commentary on Luke makes this comment about that letter. He says, Lloyd-Jones described what all true preachers know. That it's one thing to preach the word and another thing to preach the word in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lloyd-Jones' grandson, Christopher Catherwood or Catherwood, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but he wrote, he wrote this about his grandfather. The one thing he prayed for, the one thing he relied on, the one thing he waited for, and the one thing above all else and beyond most other preachers of his generation, which thousands felt under his preaching, was the unction, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And oh, my dear brothers, this is what we need. This is what we need. This is what this crazy lost, confused, mixed up generation desperately needs. This is what I need. This is what you need if our ministries are going to be effective. And where do we obtain this unction of the Spirit upon our preaching and upon our ministries? In the same way Jesus did. And here we see where the theme of Yesterday's sermon and the theme of this one come together. It's interesting. Jesus received this anointing while he was praying. And in Luke eleven nine 9 and following, Jesus said, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? What a promise. Do we believe that promise? My dear pastor friend, are you convinced of your desperate need for the unction of the Holy Spirit upon your ministry? And if you say yes, does your prayer life bear witness to this? Do you ask for this regularly? Consistently, persistently, do you seek? Do you knock? Do you ask as Jesus exhorts us to do? May it not be said of any of us that we have not because we ask not. And let it not be said of any of us that we receive not because we believe not. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Are you careful not to grieve the Spirit by an unholy life? Are you tolerating sin in your life? Neglecting to maintain a good conscience toward God and toward men? Are there secret reservations in your devotion to Jesus Christ? Areas of your life that you're unwilling to yield up completely to Him as a living sacrifice? When you're preparing your sermons... 
Do you pray for the Spirit's help throughout the week? Do you earnestly cry to God for the Spirit's blessing upon your ministry and your labors? And before you preach, do you pray for the power of the Holy Spirit? And as you preach, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? As you're preaching, do you depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit? And not merely upon your gifts and preparations. Dear brother, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and depend upon the Spirit in your preaching? Charles Spurgeon was one of the most gifted preachers who ever lived. Next to Christ himself. And yet his confidence was not in his preparation. Though he studied a lot wasn't in his gifts. Though he was tremendously gifted, his only trust was in the power of the Holy Spirit. You may have heard the story. As the story goes, it was his habit every Lord's Day, as he walked up the stairs to his pulpit before that vast congregation of thousands of people. Just try to imagine that. Coming to hear Spurgeon preach. It was his practice, his habit, as he walked up the stairs to the pulpit, to say quietly to himself, at each step, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Brothers, who would even dare to stand before a congregation of God's people to preach His Word and not believe in the Holy Spirit? And not depend upon the Holy Spirit? I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. May God grant that we too will believe in the Holy Spirit and know more of His power upon our preaching. God willing, we'll come back next time and we'll pick up with some other elements uh, that mark the preaching of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the help of Your Spirit this morning. And we pray that Your Word would work powerfully in our hearts, that it would convict us but that it would also inspire us and encourage us. And we pray you would work in our hearts faith to believe that there is such a thing as the power of the Holy Spirit in preaching. And we pray that we might experience it and know more and more of it in our ministries and in our churches. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>